Hello and welcome to another round of New Time Religion featuring Dr. Andrew Root with me, Derek Tronsgaard. Thanks so much for listening. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to hit you up with a few quick things. First, a few weeks ago, Andy released his new book, The End of Youth Ministry, and it is great. It is a wonderful book, and if you're in youth ministry or any sort of ministry, really, you should check it out. There's a link in our show notes where listeners of New Time Religion can get 40% off the cover price. It's also available on Amazon, and you can grab the ebook on the Kindle store. So please check out the book. Also, today's episode was recorded before the pandemic. So if it sounds like Andy and I are in the same room, it's because we were, but that was before all of the social distancing stuff. And today's episode is actually the second part of a voicemail left to us by a listener named Jason. We used the first part of his question on a previous episode a few weeks back. So thank you, Jason, so much for giving us so much to talk about. Covered two episodes. If you want to leave us a voicemail with a question that we might cover in a future episode, give our hotline a call. The number is 651-800-1089. That's 651-800-1089. And leave us your name and your contact info so at the end of your question we can get in touch with you and give you one of Andy's books as a thank you for being a listener and leaving your question. So with that, here's another round of New Time Religion. Hi, my name is Jason Medina. I'm a youth director for Nativity Lutheran Church in Bend, Oregon, which is located in central Oregon. I'd appear in youth groups that I would consider connected to evangelical Christianity, though I use that word in a spectrum, not necessarily a, a myopic definition, um, still have about them as part of their ethos duty or obligation, both of parents and, and kiddos to attend youth groups. So they seem still very successful, whereas mainline not so much as as um, experience and feelings dictate attendance at most things. And so I would love for someone to comment on, is there a split difference between evangelical and mainline when it comes to youth group thriving or youth group declining, or perhaps they're on parallel trajectories? So it, it, it sounds like, and thanks again for your great questions, Jason. We're getting two episodes out of it. Um, it sounds like he's he's wondering why, as mainliners, we kind of have that posture of like, well, you can come to church if you want to, and it's an option, whereas other other people in, in other denominations and stuff, it's more of that sort of duty-based mm-hmm. understanding of, of why you go to church. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, as I've... As I've been talking about you know both the faith formation in the secular age and the pastor in the secular age um you know you try to you try to get these things down into like presentation mode and, and you know what slides do you use to make sense of it and it, it, these aren't easy because these are complicated ideas as any listener of the podcast knows but one of the things i've thought about is how um kind of thinking about Taylor talks about these things he calls the ages, or I call the ages, but he's talking about the ancient regime, like the the times of kings and queens, and then what he calls the age of mobilization, which really the best way to think about that is um, the big shift from the world is the way it is, society is the way it is, because God is in heaven and the king is on his throne. The divine right understanding. Yeah, the kind of divine right understanding to the American Revolution, where we the people. So it's no longer that... 
the the realm needs to be a reflection of heaven. It's more that we, the people, I mean, we should care about God. We should use God's laws. You can hear kind of enlightenment thinking here. But ultimately, we, the people, get to decide the order of our society. The, the authority in society is shifted to the people rather than being the God right. and then this top-down. Right, yes. Uh, yep. So now we, the people, can decide. So we can then mobilize our lives any way we want. And, and Taylor does say you got to get some kind of form of deism to, to get to that. Um but then, the, then we enter into the age of authenticity, which is, you know, mainly what the Yellow Book is, is about. Now, what I find really interesting that connects to Jason's question is that when you look at mainline Christianity, as opposed to evangelical Christianity, both are off kilter when you put those two th- those two things together. So, mainline Christianity, more than evangelicalism, is absolutely sold on the ethic of authenticity. You do you, mm-hmm. whatever. Whatever that you is, um, you get to determine your identity. The problem with religion is it hasn't been supportive of all sorts of forms of identities. What makes us different than other churches is that we're open to identities. But what's really ironic about that is that mainline Christianity is more utterly committed to the denomination, which the denomination is a form of religion for the age of mobilization. So you, you're off kilter. So you need to keep denominational Christianity going. You need loyalty. You need people to function out of duty. Um, they need, you know, like, like I often say, uh, denominational Christianity can only exist for one more generation. And what I mean by that is it has to be reenacted. It has to be remobilized every generation or it cannot exist. This is why every mainline denomination has a, some kind of... What, what, what's in the ELCA. God's work, uh, our hands. Well, I was thinking of the youth gathering. Oh, okay. That you need a youth yeah. gathering because it's an investment in getting the next generation to choose to enact their lives as Lutherans. Because if they don't, there can be no ELCA. So you need them to, to enact their lives this way. But the problem is, is that the more you perpetuate and support a really strong, a really dogmatic age of authenticity, I think we all should be for a lot of elements of the age of authenticity, but the more you say the only thing that matters is you, and whatever, whatever speaks to you is the only authority you should listen to, the more you support that, the less reason you have to... Exist sub- as a denomination. Yeah, and, and, subor- yeah. and subordinate what you really want to do for the good of the institutional structure. You know what I'm saying? Like, So, so I mean, so... so- I guess what I'm hearing you say is like theologically the main line is totally fine adopting some of the age of authenticity stuff, but in its actual practice, but institutionally, it's totally it, it, it can't work. The, yeah, so there's a, there's a contradiction in right. here. So this, but this goes to the other element that I think that Jason is getting at is what you see. So if you see in mainline Christianity, you kind of have an off kilter where you have a neo-Durkheimianism needing to keep denominational Christianity alive, but an ethic that says, or, an, or a, a kind of perspective inside the ethic of authenticity that says the more you do you and the more you're opposed to any authoritative structure other than what speaks to you, the better off you are. That becomes hard. How do you keep, how do you keep, a denomination going if, if it functions that way, which is one of the reasons why most mainline churches are actually filled with the um, the dis the disaffiliated ev- evangelical children um, more than they're filled with the children of other mainliners. Other mainliners kids don't go to church, which mm-hmm. is what I'm frightened about with my with my own children. You yep. know? Um, but it works the other way. That's off kilter the other way. I think in evangelicalism, where they have 
been more progressive, if you will, use that word in quotes, when it comes to congregational forms. Far less committed to um, denominational loyalty. So, for instance, every Lutheran church you go to, particularly outside the Twin Cities, you will see that it will say ELCA on its board. Wants to signal it's not Missouri Synod, it's ELCA, it's part of this denomination. You go to evangelical churches, sometimes you have no idea what Grace denomination Church. They're. Yeah, Grace Church, or, you know, the joke always is they name themselves after what they destroyed to build their church. Westwood. Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, We're uh, just naming megachurches in the Twin Cities yeah, now, but yeah. Calm, Eagle, Eagle Brook. Eagle Brook, Calm, Calm Valley. I don't know if there's a Calm Valley, but you know what I mean. Um, um, so it had been much more, quote-unquote, progressive on being post or Kymian. Do you think part of that, though, is because the mainline's tradition is in old-world Europe, whereas oh, evangelical sure. is just uniquely it's, American? It's in a uniquely American phenomenon. Absolutely. That's why it's more entrepreneur, yeah. um, too. It, it's also been more strategic in how to respond to the losses of secular, too, which has made it have a issue with revelation as much as mainline, the mainline has for different reasons. But it, it tends also then to be off kilter in the sense that it's post Durkheimian, but it also then more kind of um, in a, it's a sense of its ethic means is, is more connected to the age of mobilization. So it does demand more duty and loyalty. So that's why Jason's point's a good one, that evangelicals actually are not, do not feel a moral outrage when they're told you're supposed to or you have to, or you should. For me, this is always clear is that when I talk about my old book, The Children of Divorce, and when I talk to mainliners about my book, The Children of Divorce, which, you know, if you haven't read the book, you can check it out, but it's it's a book that says divorce is really hard on kids. And when I say that to mainline audiences, first of all, mainliners almost never ask me to talk about it. And secondly, I will get responses like, what's your, why did you do this? You made us feel bad. Like, there's people in here who's gone through a divorce, and now you, you're making them feel bad about, about their kids. Or, you know... Like like the parents are feeling guilty yes, about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then they feel an absolute violation. Like, it is a moral outrage that you have made me feel bad. And that's a problem with the Christianity and the church. Anyhow, and that's a problem with fundamentalism. It makes people feel bad. And now you've said something that could be true. I'm not saying mine perspective is true. I mean, I stand by it. But it could be true, but that doesn't matter. You're never supposed to make anyone feel bad. Um... And sometimes there's not even anyone in the room who maybe is living through that, but they just say, this could, this this sets off my spidey sense that someone could have their feelings or how dare you. I go to evangelical churches and I'm asked to talk about it, and people will come up to me after and say, thank you. Thanks for saying this. And then they'll say things like, you know, I've been going through a divorce right now, and I'm just so glad you said this. It gave me a lot to think about, and it made me a lot, you know, I, 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 I feel really bad, and I feel like, you know, I've made some really bad decisions, but thank you for sharing this. And where what I take away from that is that evangelicals, for good or for ill, go to church and don't expect that they're going to leave having felt good about themselves completely. That they know sometimes that they are going to be confronted, even care-fronted. Um, but there is going to be something at stake, and they are going to be asked to correlate to some other moral code, where mainliners have a harder time with that. And in some ways, it's, that's a good, that's a game, that the sense that you, your own expressive experience has value over and against correlation to doctrine or to tradition or something, there are things we should celebrate with that. But we also find ourselves in, in, in a certain kind of extreme or a, a danger in the mainline where it's just like, we can get to the excesses of 
the ethic of authenticity here. So it makes all sorts of sense when it comes to youth groups and Jason's point where you will still see it hanging on in evangelical Christianity where it's like you're supposed to, you should. As a parent, you should feel bad if your kid doesn't. That that duty and obligation can still be there. I would say it's dissipating. It's much less than before that the inroads of a heightened authenticity is making its way even in those communities as well. Um, but authenticity is a high doctrinal commitment for mainliners. But what they, but what the mainline has to come to grips with is how do you maintain institutional commitment how do you institution the how do you hold on to the goods that keep an institution afloat if people or if obligation is made evil how do you inside the commitment in one way or another, to an, to an ethic of authenticity, in living in an age of authenticity, how do you create some kind of obligatory structures outside of people's expressive wants? How do you do that? You know what I mean? That, that, and and this, and this kind of starts to pivot us away from Jason's question because I think in the end of the day, um, the hill we want to die on is not getting people to participate in program spaces more. Yeah. But but the fact that people need to be together and need to be together in a kind of face to face way for, I mean, this is a loaded statement, but for the church to be church, which in some ways I hate that statement because it's so weird um, and is so imprecise, we don't know what we're talking about. But for the church to be the body of Christ that is in communion with one another, we actually need to be together. And we need to be together around difficult topics. And so, you know, in the other podcast, we were talking about what if we built our times together around trying to really wrestle with and interpret i can't remember the, the guy's name we use but with the guy who says that gus he, gus was saint it gus? gus yeah saint gus around gus um, but if no one shows up well what's the point what's the point of that yep. so but we really have to we have to uh be able to crack this nut of what um of what leads to some kind of obligatory structure. You can't have community without obligatory structure, without people feeling some kind of obligation to be in each other's lives. And um, one of the strong streams of the age of authenticity, of authenticity itself, is if it ain't working for you, get out. But the problem is to be something very different than a consumer collective, to be a community that shares deeply in each other's lives, you got to be present even when it's not working for you or when it's going to be heavy or or hard. Um, and I, I mean, one of the things that I wonder about, and I've wondered about this all the way back to my book, The Promise of Despair, um, I've, 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 I've referenced two old books. I like it, uh, we'll, yeah. We'll see if the, if like the Amazon <laughs> ranking throwback, goes up. Throwback Thursday. It's Throwback Thursday. Um, but I wonder if the narratives and the experience of giving and receiving ministry um, and a kind of sense of the theology of the cross can create something like obligatory structures, but it's based in the sharing in our personhood, the knowing of each other's narratives, if that um, sends me deep into each other's lives. 
Uh, because, you know, there, there is a, a sense of what holds families together. You know, I'm doing a kind of a la Bonhoeffer thing of kind of thinking through this through families. It is a sense of uh, kind of obligatory biological structure, almost something evolutionary that holds them together. But people also opt out of spending time with their families or calling their parents all the time. And what makes families a really deep, rich community, and you can think of other others of these c- kind of communities, are the way that... Um, we know each other's narratives, that we've walked through some dark moments together, um, that we've been there in, the, in that in that um, in those times, and then that 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 our, we know our own selves and our own story inside of these these narratives of us being together, but you still have to get people there, and, and willing to invest at least emotionally enough, um, and feeling obligated enough. But I guess my question is, it will not work. Or I guess my point is, it will not work for fe- people to feel obligated to institution structure or doctrine or denominational collective. But it could work that people feel obligated to each other's personhood. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, where, where Taylor's going with this, and, and this has been maybe in some ways a critique of Taylor, but people are saying, you know, really what, one of the ways to interpret a secular age is it's really a 700-page thought experiment on what happened in Quebec, hmm. his, home, his home province, and how when he was growing up, everything was embedded, you know, political party with neighborhood, with factory jobs, um, with Catholic faith, you kind of, with your kids in some kind of youth organization, like all those things were lined up. They were all embedded with each other. Well, what's happened over the history of his life is how all of those institutional structures really have become disembedded and pulled apart. And how does religion, how does how does even a sense of transcendence fare out of this disembedding? But I think it's gone so far that that the Christian faith, that Protestantism, we'll just say, really has to deal with the fact that we've gone so far, especially mainline uh, liberal Protestant, has to deal with that we've pushed this so far that we almost have come to a sense culturally, which I think we agree, we end up supporting um, within mainline Christianity, where we've disembedded the individual from the family and almost think that it's wrong to think about people inside of families. And so it's no wonder that we deal with such huge forms of isolation because even when it comes to thinking about people, we don't think of them as persons who are fundamentally embedded in relationships, which the family is one. Is that because family makes a demand on your identity and we push back against anybody giving you identity other than yourself? I think that's part of it, but it's also, unfortunately, the way family has been co-opted by when allowed to be co-opted by um, the far right, you know, so you get focus on the family and things like that, which is why um, the practical theologian from the University of Chicago, Don Browning, um, who I've in, have published things in opposition to Browning, fe- feeling like he's just a little bit too liberal for me, but where I really think he's a superstar and it did amazing work. He died about six six to eight years ago, but he as a classic liberal and committed kind of pragmatist philosophical pragmatist liberal fought really hard for the family and thought the family was really important and actually i remember back in oh it must have been 2000 and uh maybe six maybe seven um browning saying that and this was when like the conversations about um gay marriage were up 
were, were really being discussed and people were talking about, well, civil unions is the way to go as opposed to gay marriage. And Browning absolutely fought for um, gay marriage. And he did because he had um, commitments towards the inclusion of um, of uh, gays and lesbians, as they would say at that time, uh, but also because he wanted marriage to stay strong. It was it was a family thing. It was a family thing that yep. he thinks societies were strongest when families were strong, and that progressive liberals should care about the family, hmm. and created multiple books on that. But for the most part, we've given that up. Like like family's just kind of a taboo subject on the left, and you know. Yeah, the, there and the the f- the family is is owned by the right, and you can't really talk about it. But how does the church do that? Right. So the, it puts the church in a difficult position. So Jim Dobson can talk about it, but yeah, Jim Dobson yeah. can talk about it, or or whoever else on on the far far right can talk about the family. But those who are centric or to the left feel like they're going to be misunderstood if they talk about family. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, maybe you can talk about families being involved in confirmation or whatever, but if you talk about the necessity, even in an age of authenticity, to think about what family is, it becomes hard. But then, you know, the reverse side, the overstatement of probably this podcast is to say, if you can't talk about families, then you can't talk about children. And actually, if you can't talk about families, how do you talk about immigration Yeah. as families come across the border? And if you're going to be morally outraged about children being put in cages, then how do you talk about theologically what is a family hmm. and even what's a human being? Because a human being is more than just their authentic journey, their own expressive individualist journey. To be a human being is to be in communion with others. And in relationship. And in being fundamentally in relationship. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and if we don't have relationship, and if we don't see relationships as something more than instrumental ends even instrumental ends for my own identity, um, then we enter into exactly what we've been saying through this podcast we get into with Rosa. We get into deep senses of alienation because what we need from the world is for the world to come to us relationally, but relationships that are not instrumentalized. And families, obviously there's there's negative elements, of the, uh, negative, negative examples, but family as, as a normed um, common community of relationships are relationships for persons not for instrumental ends like i had my kids not so that i could get a tax deduction right it's because i love my kids right and And there's something beautiful about that parental yes and you lose the resonance of that parental relationship when all of a sudden you realize your daughter at seven can really knock down threes and what you decide is the objective of being a parent is to get her to the WNBA or scholarship yeah. and all of a sudden you become very invested as a parent but you feel less resonance and communion with your child because the relationship has not been turned into your own identity being father and the gift she gives you by calling you dad um, you become coach you become and then I'm that taxi dad driver, that yells become, at the referees right and you become takes off my shirt and right. fights and gets kicked out of the arena yeah, yeah you become the one who optimizes the relationship to get the, the get the best ends as opposed to the one who shares in the spirit and the communion of being together new time religion featuring dr andrew root is produced by me derek tronsgaard Andy's new book, The End of Youth Ministry, is available now and can be purchased through the link in the show notes for 40% off the cover price. Hard copies can be found on Amazon, and the ebook is on the Kindle store now. 
New Time Religion is a production of the Alter Guild Podcast Network, and you can check them out for more great shows. Thanks again so much for listening. We hope you'll join us next time for another round of New Time Religion.